Well, I shared my testimony uh, here. Uh, it was about four and a half years ago, actually. Um, I told Terry it seemed like I just, it was a little while ago, but it was four and a half years ago. <clears throat> and as I look around the room, um, I would say that most of you were not born 44 years ago. <laughs> I think that would be a pretty safe assumption when you look around the room. I was converted in 1974, <clears throat> but um, in, uh, there were some things going on uh, in our country as a teenager growing up in the 60s <clears throat> that had a dramatic impact upon young people, especially young men. Um, there was uh, a movement in our culture um, that we refer to as the hippie movement, uh, long hair, the drug scene, um, and uh, there was also a significant event that affected young men, and that was the Vietnam War. And I, that's what I grew up in. And um, <clears throat> I went, it was in Vietnam for about a year and a half and came home from Vietnam in 1970, 1970, in the falls, November of 1970. <clears throat> and I was, had no thought at all about God. When I was in Vietnam, I didn't think about God. Uh, hear about these foxhole conversions. I, I didn't have any of that. I, I was scared, uh, but I didn't think about God. Um, I mocked the Bible when people would talk about it. I didn't think about God, but other than that. So there was no thought of God in my mind. Um, when I came home, I had a real close, we had a, a friend, I had a really close friend in high school who I still am very close to. And um, we had some mutual friends and we had, uh, we just did a lot of things together. Um, and we spent a lot of time together and it was really a pretty tight group of young people. <clears throat> and... Um, we spent so much time together that we decided, why is it that we are with one another every night till 11 o'clock and then we go to our own houses? Why don't we just all get a big house and pitch in our resources and live together? So we did that. We bought a big old house. There's several of us and pitched in our resources for rent and utilities and food and we lived together. <clears throat> Well, when you have a big house and you're a young person and you're into the drug scene and you have a lot of friends, that becomes a real nice place to hang out. And so there were many people that started hanging out at our house. And there was one fella who needed a place to stay. His name was Hans. He was an uh, acquaintance of an acquaintance, I guess. But um, <clears throat> we were the hippies. 
We were love. We were peace. We wanted to show our openness. So we allowed Hans to stay there for a while. <clears throat> and um, so Hans stayed and he began sharing. He was a professing believer. He began sharing some things with some of the people in the house. And he had a particular book he wanted us to read on prophecy, which wasn't really, now looking back, wasn't a very good book. However, <clears throat> it did cause a seed to be planted in my mind. Jesus is coming back. See, I had never thought much about that. Jesus is coming back? Jesus was in history. Jesus is coming back? That thought just kind of was in my mind. And I couldn't get away from it. I tried. I mean, I didn't, I didn't listen to the guy. I didn't pay much attention to him. I didn't talk to him that much. But um, in the course of events, with all the people hanging out and hanging around, we started getting a lot of people coming and a lot of people doing drugs in the house. And there was a, one night in particular, a pretty rough crew of motorcycle guys came by and they started hanging out and partying at the house. And so the next day, we decided we have got to do something here. We're going to get busted, go to jail uh, for the drugs in the house. <clears throat> so we... Um, we made a decision that um, we were going to clean the house of drugs. Couldn't have any drugs in the house. And you could come over to the house if you were stoned and you just wanted to hang out or crash. You could do that. But no use of drugs in the house. And um, so the frequency of occurrence diminished greatly. Uh, we didn't have as many people coming over. And um, so it didn't last very long that that house that we were all together. I don't remember how long it was. We ended up breaking up and going our separate ways. <clears throat> and I was a university student at this time. I'd gone to the University of Arizona. And uh, a fella uh, I knew, a friend of mine, said, <clears throat> you're looking for a place to live. I can there's a place you can live for free. And I said, where is that? He said, well, there's this house out in the desert. It's not too far from town. It's on outskirts of town, but it's a ways. It's a little ways. Uh, but you could live there because they're having vandal. They have two houses on that property, a real big house, real nice one, and it's getting vandalized. And if you would live in the guest house, and just be there in the evenings to try, you know, just the presence would probably deter some of the vandalism. You can stay there for free. And so I did. I, well, that's a good deal for a college student. I had a motorcycle and I could get to and from campus pretty, pretty easily and cheaply. And uh, so I did. I went out there. And that was, I feel like, the beginnings of my time where God began to stir in my heart. It was a special time, but it was, um, I don't know how long I lived out there. But it was in that time I was really 
ensnared in a sin that I just couldn't get out of. And it wasn't drugs. I was just ensnared in the sin that I could not get out of. It was just had a hold of me. You know, the way sin is, um, when you start dabbling in sin, you feel like you're completely in control. You can quit this thing anytime you want. What's the deal? I can walk away from this. Every alcoholic has said he can quit anytime he wants. But what you end up finding is that you dabble in it, you dabble in it, you dabble in it. Pretty soon, the tables are kind of reversed and suddenly you realize you are not master anymore. You are the slave. It is in control of you. And that, that's, that place out there in that desert where I was living in this little house, that's what God brought to my mind. I am trapped. I can't get out. <clears throat> you know, Jesus says in John eight thirty four, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And I want to tell you, slave of sin, is, sin is a tough taskmaster. It appears very nice at first. That's the way the enemy is. That's the way Satan is. He's, just, he's deceptive. And uh, this thing that is feels so good and liberating suddenly becomes a trap. And you can't get out. And that's where I was. I was 25. <clears throat> And I remember being on my bed that night thinking about this, and I just started weeping and crying. And I said, God, I don't even know whether you're real. I don't even know whether you exist. But I do know this. I am trapped in this sin. And I didn't call it sin. I'm trapped in this situation. And I can't get out. I, I've tried. I can't. It's got me. If you're real, would you break the power of this thing in my life? And over the next weeks and months, I was set free. I wasn't a Christian, but I was set free from that sin. I was delivered from it. It was amazing. And I looked back on it and I'd say, I... I, God did something here. He broke the power of that thing in my life. <clears throat> Another thing that kind of came to my mind when I was out there doing thinking by myself, Terry had been converted. She was a really good friend. We were really good buddies. And my friend Bill was converted and his wife was converted. We were part of that crew that lived together in this house. And, and uh, they had all gotten converted, those three anyway. And Bill and Terry began sharing some things with me about the gospel. And I knew it sounded so right. It seemed so true. It seemed, it seemed right what they were saying. 
But I also knew what others were saying about them. And I also knew that I really wanted the approval of a lot of these other folks. And it just really was, I was just struggle going on inside. I got so disgusted with myself for being such a wimp that you couldn't stand up to people because you were so controlled by what they thought of you. You just couldn't take a stand for what's right. And you see a lot of young people get swept up in that peer pressure. Yeah. It's, it's tough. If you don't have the power of God to stand up against that, you're in deep water. <clears throat> you know, Jesus says <clears throat> in John 5, I was reading there this morning, it says in verse 44 of John 5, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? See, if you're seeking some approval from some group or some other person or people, yeah. and you're, that's, that's riding higher, that's a higher priority than you're seeking God's approval in your life. You're just filled with unbelief. How can you believe? That's what Jesus said. How can you believe? Well, that had a real control on my life for for a while, and um, but over the next uh, year or so, I wasn't converted yet. But God was starting to stir in my heart, and um, <clears throat> I moved away from that place. And um, uh, we took a Terry, myself, Bill, and his wife wanted to go on a camping trip. We've been talking about going to Canada. So we went in the spring of 73. We went up to Canada, straight up uh, from Arizona up into Alberta, and then just camped across to British, uh, British, uh, Alberta and British Columbia till we got to Vancouver. And we had met some young folks that were in a rock group that were celebrating some holiday there in Canada. They were very cordial with us, and we ended up staying with them when we got into uh British Columbia into Vancouver. And in that process, we really began talking about and had been talking about the possibility of moving up there. I wasn't running from the draft. I'd already been in the military. I was just interested in living up there. It was so beautiful. And so we came home, and um, I graduated from the University of Arizona in 1973, and I decided... Um, I was going to go back up and see if there was any opportunity for employment. If you had opportunity for employment, there was a better chance you could immigrate up there. And um, so I remember before leaving, was, I don't know, this would have been a week or so maybe before I left, I just started thinking about some of the things Terry had been saying and Bill had been saying. and I've been thinking about the Lord some. And so I remember before I left just getting on my knees and saying, Lord, I just want to do what your will is for my life. <clears throat> and if, if you want me to move to Canada, open the door. And if you don't, close the door. Well, I went up there and the doors were all closed. And man, I was down, just discouraged. It's interesting, you pray that, Lord, I want to do your will. If you open the door, I'll go through it. If not, I, I'm going to get de- depressed. <laughs> <laughs> 
what happened. You know, I was just down in the dumps. And I came home and I gave Terry a call because she was interested. She wanted to know how things went. And so I called her. And I, she could tell I was pretty down. And so she came over and, and visited. And at that time, she was living at a place called Maranatha House. <clears throat> Maranatha House was um, affiliated with the church she was attending. It was a pretty good-sized church. And um, <clears throat> there was a fella there that ran Maranatha House. And he, what they would do is, there were, at that time, there were a lot of street people. We called them street people because most of them weren't homeless. They were runaways. They ran away from their home. And you can live in the, the parks in Tucson year-round. I mean, it's cold in the wintertime to live outside there, but it's doable. It's not doable here, but it's doable there. And so you get a lot of people that were wanderers from up in Colorado come down to Tucson in the wintertime and live in the parks. Well, what they would do is they would take um, a young, they'd take some of their people from Maranatha House and they'd go out there and, and witness in the parks. And some of those kids they would bring in to live in dorms. They had a men's dorm and a women's dorm. They had plenty of older men that were mature enough to be supervisors in the dorms. But they didn't have an, uh, a lot of young ladies that were mature enough to kind of oversee some of the activities in the girls' dorm. A lot of these kids were really just teenage kids, uh, young. And so they asked Terry to stay there. And so when she came over to visit with me that night, they were having a special meeting or something over at Maranatha House. I was pretty down in the dumps. And she said, well, will you want to go to this meeting at Maranatha House? And I said, yeah, yeah. So we went over there, and it was really bad. It was uh, some sort of concert thing where it was just it was poor. And she was kind of embarrassed about the whole thing, I think. And so we started to leave, and the fellow who was in charge, his name was Tex, and he, he said, um, if any of you are interested, just out of the blue, if any of you are interested in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I'll be in the dining room. And I just reached for the doorknob, and I said, I stopped, and I said, I am. Well, you can, charismatic church, right? Uh, <clears throat> and so I went back there, and they, a bunch of them gathered around, laid hands on me, prayed, spoke in yeah. tongues. I don't know what was going on, but I, I just remember that uh, I was praying. I don't even remember the content of my prayer. And something happened. I, I don't know what it was, but something happened emotionally, and I was visibly affected. And um, I uh, <clears throat> got, we went out to the truck, my little truck, and I said, I think you better drive. I just don't even know if I can drive. And so Terry got in to drive, and I got in the passenger side, and I said, you know, I said, if this is real, I want this to be real. I want reality. I don't want this to be like when we used to do drugs and would get really high and feel really good tonight, and then tomorrow you're just flat. I said, I don't want that. I want reality. And she said, well, in the Bible it says that if you ask for bread, he won't give you a stone. So just ask. And so I did. And as we were driving, I just started to pray and ask God, for reality, and 
God just flooded that truck. I, I'm telling you, it just I was overwhelmed with the presence of God. I could not stop crying. I have never cried that hard since or before that time. I was gut-wrenching, weeping and wailing. And in my mind, as I was praying, um, I, you know, I don't know what to make of this, some of these things. You know, when you read about visions in the Bible, was that really physical, something they saw or something they saw in their mind? It was real to them. And, and that night, as I was closing my eyes, and I had my eyes closed to pray, I could see in my mind's eye a throne and me before it, bowed down, just prostrate before the throne, and just weeping, weeping. And um, there was two sensations that, uh, that I was hit with. I had knew nothing about the Bible. I knew nothing about it. Two sensations that hit me. One was my sense of unworthiness to be there in the presence of that throne. I was just overwhelmed with my unworthiness. And something that at the time seemed to be contradictory, I was overwhelmed with my sense of being accepted. How do you, how do you, <laughs> see, apart from God, how do you do that? That's just purely God's mercy and grace. Just that sense of overwhelming unworthiness and the sense of God's forgiveness and your acceptance. And I, I just, I don't know how long that transpired. It was about a 30-minute drive, maybe, from the church to my apartment. And um, I regained my composure after a period of time. And I smoked at the time, and so I, uh, unconsciously, like you do when you smoke, you just reach for a cigarette. I reached for the cigarette, I lit up, and I looked at my hand. It looked weird, it looked funny. It didn't feel right, and it tasted bad. And I just stood there, I just sat there looking at it, and I flipped it out the window. And um, three times that night, that happened. And I had tried to quit smoking before and always resort to something else, you know, from cigarettes to pipes to back to cigarettes. You know, there's always something in my mouth smoking. And, um, <clears throat> but that night, three times, and I did that, and every time I, I would do it just unconsciously, and I'd look, and it just felt and looked and tasted funny, and it tasted bad. Didn't seem right. So we got back to my apartment, and Terry said, "I used to take sign language uh, when I was at at the uh, uh, University of Arizona, and I used to practice with songs. And I right before I had gone up to Canada, I, I was uh, I'd started listening to some Christian music, and there was this one song that was it was." Um, said, uh, Jesus said, come to the water, stand by my side. I know you are thirsty. You won't be denied. And I used to practice signing that. And so Terry said, why don't you put that song on and just sign it? So I put the song on and I tried signing it. I couldn't get through it. 
the content of the words just smashed me. It was just such a tenderness towards the content. It was overwhelming. I just started bawling. And then uh, she said, here, I want you to read some scripture. So she'd give me the Bible, and she said, read this passage. Same thing happened. I couldn't get through the scripture. I just was weeping. For the first time, the words just came alive on the page, and the implications and what God had done for me just overwhelmed me. It was amazing. And in the days that, well, the next day, I mean, these, not everything God delivered me from, obviously, if you've been around me very long, it wasn't like the cigarettes where it was immediate deliverance. I mean, you don't have to be around me too long to know there's still a lot of work and progress working on delivering. But, um, but that was a token of God's grace in my life. Another big area in my life was <clears throat> I had a reputation among my friends as being what they would call a real downer. I was depressed and discouraged a lot. And I remember one of my friends came in to Bill. I was just at Bill's and I was walking out or something and this friend walked in and I was grumpy and um person said, boy, Kelly's in a bad mood today. And my friend said, oh, Kelly's always in a bad mood. And that was just kind of the reputation I had of being moody and downcast. And um, the first two nights, some of you have heard this probably many times, but the first two nights I was converted, I went to bed and I woke up with a smile on my face. <laughs> and it has only happened twice. But, <laughs> but again, it was a token. It was a token that God is saying, I'm changing you. <clears throat> Had a conversation with Michaela um, Faulkner last week. We were talking and... and uh, I just told her how much I appreciated her and Josiah when I was out there at the house watching them work and help their mom. And after the meeting, or after we were done cleaning up, she came up to me and she said, I just want you to know I want God to get the glory because it's not always been like that. And I said, well, that's what he does. He changes us. And see, that's what, I, that's what I experienced. It was a token that God was going to change me and take that grumpy disposition and change it. God is so kind to give us these little tastes of these things. Over the next months before we ended up, this was in January 1974, and then we got married in September of 74, but in those months, I was working <clears throat> at, uh, my friends had a at, um, hippie leather shop down at the entrance of the main gate to the University of Arizona. 
A lot of college kids would come in there and buy leather purses and sandals and belts. That was kind of a big thing back then. And so I was kind of a just a laborer in there helping him and working in this leather shop. <clears throat> and it was like God had just really put such a desire in my heart to learn the Word, to know the Word, to go to meetings, to be a part of the fellowship with the believers. And it's like I would get up in the morning, I'd head to work, I'd get done with work, I'd eat, and I'd go to church. Or I'd go to this Bible study, or I'd go to this Bible study. It was like six nights, six days a week. There was something going on. And it dawned on me as I was thinking back about this, there was no coercion at all. It, it wasn't someone saying, you need to be a part of a Bible study. You need to go here. Not, nobody said that to me. I just had this desire. I had to be there. I wanted to be there. And uh, it just was a wonderful time. The Lord really used that. I was only there for those few months before we left and uh, moved to New Mexico. But the Lord put in my heart, I mean, years later, I could still remember outlines of messages I heard in the first months I was converted. It's just amazing. Now, I don't have a good memory. If you've been around me long enough, you also know that. And to have that happen was just a wonderful, wonderful. But I, I could remember years later outlines of messages, something. Anyway, we ended up moving to New Mexico and were there one year. And then we moved in 1976 to Kirksville, or 75 to Kirksville. And then in 76, we met Charles. He was on a walk. And um, the rest, as they would say, is history. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> I just would leave this one thought with you. I don't know where all of you stand. I don't even know all your names. Um <clears throat> But something that's really stood out to me when I've talked with people um, is be honest with God. It's not easy to do. Be honest with God about yourself. Be honest with God about the situation you're in, the bondage you're in. And he said that uh, if you ask him for bread, he won't give you a stone. So ask. Just ask him. Be honest with him and ask him to deliver you, to save you, to help you. That's all I have. There was a... Let me just close with this, there was a, when I think of my conversion, this song oftentimes comes to my mind. We don't, we sing it some. I just want to read the first verse and the chorus, particularly the chorus. My heart was distressed neath Jehovah's dread frown, and low in the pit where my sins dragged me down. I cried to the Lord from the deep, miry clay. 
who tenderly brought me out to golden day. He brought me out of the miry clay. He set my feet on the rock to stay. He puts a song in my soul today. Song of praise. Hallelujah. You know, when we hear testimonies, we're hearing one side of the testimony. You're hearing my side. There's a day coming when we're going to hear God's side of the testimony. He's got all these trophies on a shelf that he saved, and he's going to tell us the story behind each one, how he won this one, how he won that one, how he won. And we'll, we'll get God's side. All those many snares that we've been saved from, that he redirected our path, saved us from many of those things like Amazing Grace says through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. We know some of them, but we don't know all of them. He knows all of them, and he'll tell the rest of the story. 